So one thing I've realized is the importance of a like a outsider's perspective because I know that there's a lot of times that I have certain intentions that I want to be or act in a certain way and and then I find out later that that's not how I'm coming across. Yeah. And I think it's really important sometimes when you if you ever have the opportunity to sort of get the honest feedback some of from somebody that is outside outside yeah. of your normal community outside of your normal like just your world <laughs> you know i say that it's, in, it's incredibly like, helpful and that's what we loved you know we loved about traveling is sort of seeing new ways of doing things and being that we didn't realize that there are whole cultures that exist in entirely different ways until we've gone and had those experiences right right and so it's it's interesting because we are uniquely positioned with students from all over the world to be able or in different backgrounds, different, you know, all sorts of things yeah. to talk with us and to talk about, you know, what what do they see in you know, either Christianity or the us. community, us, America, anything, you know, but like yeah. and and that it, there was a powerful time this semester during COVID that one of the LLCs, the Global Village, did an event yeah. where they zoomed in people from um, you know international students that were current students of Concordia, but were living in all different parts. And then it was sort of because they had gone home. Yeah, because they yeah. had gone home. And then part of the whole event was them sort of sharing what their perspective is. Of when they look and hear the news and see the news of America, and right, yeah, and and didn't, when you say that that was a powerful, it's powerful. Moment. I wish I, I I didn't capture the audio, so I wanted to get a little bit right. of that for this show for us. That was a show that we were going to do for the Qui Bono cast, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and that's something that I think we've reflected on as being really important because when we hear tough things, criticisms. We sometimes think it's like an op- we get defensive or whatever, but instead, if you realize it's an opportunity to learn something about ourselves or our country or our community yeah. that we never would have quite seen it that way, and I think we so we have an interview coming up with. Not with a dog. <laughs> I think this is case in point. She says, I think what you need to be listening to is the sounds of my needing to go for a walk. <laughs> yes, I'm an outsider perspective but anyway, here. So, yeah, but this is an interview. <laughs> but we, so we, did, we had an opportunity to have uh, an interview with an international student here at Concordia, Malik, and basically trying to learn from him, you know, what are some things that he's seen about the area, the community, America in general, and what I really found, uh, I, I guess I just never saw it this way, but what I really found very interesting was his take that there's so much, I think, that we, that America, well, especially he was, re- he was referring to uh, with work and, and what drives our work and and then I think that that connects with you know but what drives our food and how we eat, and there's so much our whole lifestyles and how we treat each other, and I I find it really interesting to sort of kind of think that not every country they don't all work for the same reasons they don't all eat 
kind of in, like the same for the way. Same reasons, right, for the same reasons. They is don't it vacation. feed for the fattening, for the slaughter, or is it the joy of food itself? You know, right. those sorts so of things. Yeah. I, I think that you'll find it interesting to hear uh, Malik's take on what, what his understanding of America's culture has been or what he's seen um, that stood out to him. Malik's a Saudi student. He was a student in one of my classes this odd semester, and it was really nice to have the chance to work through a project uh, with him that I thought was just really compelling, and I I wanted to have him just kind of be a a part of our conversation along these lines of friends, old and new, our, uh, our chance to share with you what it's like in many ways to have been a part of education and meeting folks from all these different backgrounds, and why, uh, as the Latin phrase goes, docendo discimus. Docendo discimus means in teaching we learn. That is if we have ears to hear. And again, sometimes when people want to have criticisms, we, we want to push that aside. In this case, this is a, a, a gentleman who did not come saying, hey, I'd like to be no. on your podcast. I, I begged him. I said, I just, I want to just ask you some questions. Yeah, to pull, like, it was pulling teeth to yeah. try to get him He's to say very, anything. Very, very kind. Very, you know. That, you know. And I bet, was, I bet maybe one of these days I'll try to get more out of him. Um, but, uh, but do this in your life. You know, find people um, that you trust and that uh, you have a relationship with, but also maybe have different vantage points so that you can get something that will help you to understand how to balance yourself and to find healing in yourself. Friends, wherever you are, wherever you need healing and balance, uh, don't give up hope, friends. We're just around the corner to joy. I think it. I believe it. Let's make it happen. Thanks for being part of the ride. Let's go. All ahead full. Well, here we are. It is a surprisingly sunny day on a boxing day, as we're recording Boxing Day, day after Christmas. And we had a wonderful time yesterday uh, with uh, with a student that I re- really dig. He's a wonderful student, uh, Malik. Malik, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. How about you? Um, fantastic, especially since we were pretty sad, Stacey. Was, yesterday was Christmas. Mm-hmm. What was sad about yesterday? Well, our oldest, Augie, wasn't able to join us for the first time. For the for first Christmas. time in 20-something years, 22 years. He'll, he'll be 23, December 31st. He had his own Christmas, and that was good. That's a wonderful thing. But especially with COVID and uh, everybody's gone on campus, there's hardly anybody around. But Malik, you're stuck here, mm-hmm. and uh, you were going to go to Arizona. Yeah, we're whining about our oldest not being here, yeah, right? And we so you're all by you. yourself, yeah. right? But I know, but I'm saying, like, poor Malik. I, we need, oh, he's got, you know. he's far yeah, from family. <laughs> you are, uh, you are an international student here. I am. Yeah, and uh, uh, t- tell us, first of all, maybe just, um, you know, what, what brought you here to study and, and, you know, what are your life goals? Um, I've had uh, an interesting story coming here to the U.S. in the first place. Uh, my sister and I, we got the scholarship, so we came both to Southern California. Um, so, yeah, I started my Bachelor's of Arts in Psychology here in Concordia in Fall 19. Um, a part of one of my goals is to share mental health and psychology generally in Saudi Arabia. So I feel like I could be that person in Saudi. That is so groovy. That is so mm-hmm. good. I mean, just anywhere. Mental health is something, especially in uh, various... Uh, even parts of of society in America, different countries, the way we think about um, mental health and its treatment 
for a long time has been has been stigmatized. So anyway, so yesterday, um, yesterday we had we had uh, a little uh, our Christmas dinner. You know, it was very kind of uh, open you know, out here in the air, and it was nice to have. Uh, Malik with us, but the other day um, we we went to get um, some uh, takeout lunch, and I was thinking, all right, what should I what should I get? And uh, you're a Muslim gentleman, and I thought, well, where should I go? And then I went to uh, to just get some Chick Fil A. Now, then I thought to myself, oh, I really wanted to take you to to, to like get some halal guys. Like it's good <laughs> halal guys, and we'll do that soon. But I thought that what I kind of laughed to myself, and I didn't tell you this, that in a weird way. For Southern California American Christians, evangelicals, there's a way in which Chick-fil-A <laughs> is like evangelical halal. Now, let me explain this. It is, it is the one restaurant that you cannot get food on Sunday. Yeah, they close on Sundays. And so right. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and, and it's Christian chicken. <laughs> because because it has like little verses like you know don't don't think well, verses that's in and out in and out in and out there's but, a tradition in American but I think that culture. they're they're at least known to be uh, ran by Christians yes. or you know so the, yeah the different um, so like, yeah so it's Christian chicken the different <laughs> franchises or whatever usually <laughs> it's Christian chicken and um and there's parts like I I really like that they don't work people all week. That's good. I like that their values come into their business practices and, and so forth. And they're always very, very wonderfully uh, nice, nice people. But, um, but it, it is funny because then we were thinking to ourselves, what is Christian food for us? <laughs> right? What would it be? And we were talking at Christmas, we were talking about how um, there's some, some indication that ham became really important for, for holidays like Easter in Spain because it forced people that were Muslim or Jewish converts that remained in Spain um, to, to, de- to declare their non-Jewishness or the non-Muslimness by their food. And so food is really political. Food is very personal. Um, food is something that is also delightful. So like being able to eat a meal with you, that's, that's meaningful. Um, the nature of what we eat is meaningful. So when... When you think about, let, I just want to start here. When you come to America, and um, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of vibrant flavors depending on you, where you are, but generally generally speaking, and I'm inviting you to be as honest as possible. Right. What do you think about Americans' diet and how we eat? Ooh, this is a tough <laughs> question. <laughs> um, and you'll do us a service if you are as as yeah, honest as possible. Truth is what yeah, we want to we, hear. We're not here obviously. to <laughs> right. Um, so um, previously, I, n- I never felt sick or get tired after eating a meal, whether it's chicken, beef, or whatever the case could be. But when I came to the U.S. after a while, um, I started to get very aware of what I eat and what I don't eat because it started making me sick and sometimes for days to the extent where I feel like a certain meal or a certain way of cooking something can actually hurt my body. Yeah. So I really feel like food here in the U.S. is far way less that are organic or clean or there's something here in the food that is actually not really right. Yes. I'm so, I, I didn't know you were going to go there, but that's true. Yeah. That's true because we've done a lot of traveling and I remember, you know, you felt so good after Japan. Yeah, When, when I was in Japan, yeah. I said, why do I feel so good? Yeah. I feel good all the time and I'm just healthy and I've got energy. And then on the way back, the very last day I got a Makadanadu. Which is how they pronounce McDonald's, and I had a McDonald's breakfast, and I and I started to feel tired, and my body felt like I was poisoned. Right, and it's and, and this is this actually relates. This is this is why this this matters because 
Um, in one sense, America feels that it's rich, or it has this idea that it, that it is wealthy. But our suspicion, as we've been traveling around the country, is that we have been tricked in many ways into having things that look rich, but actually are vacant inside. So we have a lot of people, there's a lot of desire for wealth and for success and for things and for consumption. So we want a lot of cheap food. Um, and we're happy to have that. But when we look at what actually is in the food, it's chemicals, it's mass produced, it's detached from the, the, uh, the people that, that made it, not always, but enough, even in, even in rural, like even especially sometimes in rural parts of America, the diet is worse. You'd think, well, it's closer to farming, but the farms might be just fields and fields of corn rather than um, the, like a family garden or like kind of the, the local produce. And so, you know, when you travel around the country, even just a plain tomato can taste really good. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, sometimes the mass production of food in America... Oh. You don't taste the food. Well, and a, yeah, a tomato is like dessert. You know, if it's yeah. a, if, if it's, it's a good done tomato. if it's done yeah. well, right? Right. Uh, yeah. It's- so we were thinking, like, in one sense, that we were saying to ourselves right after we had lunch, and th- I'm glad we could, you know, you know, have Chick Fil A together. But really, what was more interesting to us after that lunch, we Stacy and I said, we actually really need to think about the spirituality and the ethics of what we eat. And what it says about what we're supporting and, and what we're doing to our bodies, you know, like how right. he- not only how healthy we are, but how healthy the society is and the economy. Um, and so we're kind of thinking about inventing. This is probably insulting to, to, to all sorts of people, but it's like not meant to be like we're going to make our own dietary religious laws <laughs> for ourselves <laughs> that, that fit our um, understanding of what's the value behind this. And so we were talking the other day, like where I think that uh, prohibitions against pork in Judaism and Islam may relate to the, the ancient Near Eastern practice of sacrificing children. And so that cultures that ate pork were, uh, were cruel cultures. And I don't know this to be guaranteed to be true, but some people have suggested it. And certainly, if it were true, then um, it would most definitely be a sin. It would be most definitely immoral to eat something that has that symbolism at a certain time and place. Right. Uh, regardless of what you think religiously or what your holy texts are, I think that's really important. But I'm interested, f- as, as we're going through this, when, when you think about what halal means to you, can, can you, as, as, as a Christian man, like I don't really know, like what, what is, what is I, I know what it is in the books, right. but as a person, like what, does it, is it meaningful in your life? It is actually. Um, so halal indicates a lot of things in, in a way, but when it comes to food, so the animal should be slaughtered in a certain way. Um, the animal should not be slaughtered in front of the other animals. The animal should not see, um, let's say, the knife that it got, gets slaughtered with. Um, overall, the slaughtering should be very merciful to the animal. The animal throughout its whole life was not tortured or um, in a bad, lived in a bad condition. It, it should have had a very happy life and not something miserable. So... When it gets slaughtered, it gets slaughtered easily and mercifully. And when you eat the meat, you actually enjoy good quality mm. of the meat itself. Mm. I don't know if you've ever been able to do this because you, maybe you don't have enough non-halal meat. But one of the things that I've noticed is that when, when a, especially with beef, when I have a sense that it was uh, not fulfilling, not, not organic, not um, 
uh, ethical in the way it was raised and harvested, I can taste, I, I can almost say I can taste the pain. I can taste that because it actually the body of an animal will re- reproduce these stress chemicals that make it, um, it it makes it not taste as good. But when you have something that's the grass fed, it's it's we, we we sometimes think about organic and it's very expensive because there's all these certifications. But around the world, people just farm organically and they don't right. call it that. And I think that's really beautiful and I think that's really important. Now, um, well, and, and yeah. I appreciate too when you're mentioning about um, you know really being there with the food when you're eating because I'm like, we have a tendency just to scarf our food down, right. <laughs> you know, and not even really even think about it. And we, you know, we've even were kind of mentioning that it seems like Americans, we sort of detach ourselves from our food. Our food almost is something like we like to eat, but then we'll entertain ourselves while we're eating and not really actually be fully with the meal right. being present and I you know I appreciate I appreciate that and, and that's something I want to incorporate more in my own life because mm-hmm. again it's that that ritual of you know this is nourishing your body and respecting what went into nourishing right. your body and the animals that were you know that gave their lives for us to be able to have it so part of what we were saying is that regardless of what the actual type of meat it is or no meat at least slowing down. Well, slowing down, but saying maybe just going to fast food is kind of against our religion. Like we want to support like local, like, you know, just like local people that are, I mean, especially right now, a lot of restaurants are going out of business. We want to support those like local companies that, that are doing it well, even if it costs a little bit more. Now, what's interesting though, is that um, it's, it's very hard to do this where to hear like criticism of, of your culture, of your religious perspective, of your university or whatever. I and mean, I want to hear this because we believe that by listening, we can make ourselves healthier. So like, if you say this to me and I get offended, why are you making fun of my, why are you insulting my food? Well, maybe that hurts our relationship, but I also might keep eating food that's poisoning me. True. So there's something very good about these hard conversations for our own, for our own balance. Now, um, there are, of course, going to be many people who are not huge fans of Saeed Qutub in terms of his um, political thought. Uh, but I think that what he wrote in 1949, this Egyptian uh, educator um, came to Greeley, Colorado. And this is funny because Stacy lived in the same area of northern Colorado for a little while with your fellow students. When uh, when you didn't go to the college there, but the University of Northern Colorado, right? I was at, I was at Fort Collins, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so just a little bit over there, out at the side, is Greeley, and I and I love Greeley, and I love all human beings. But what do you remember about Greeley? Oh, the farmland. So it smelled like the cows, right? Lots and lots of factory farming mm-hmm. cow poop. Like you, it's intolerably. Yeah, it doesn't. It does not sometimes. smell good. <laughs> Maybe it's not so bad in Greeley. Maybe it's as you are on the other side, like it was the winds coming up from Greeley into, uh, into uh, Fort Collins. But, um, well, the other thing too, is that because all that area had been farmland, even when we, we bought a house, um, near Firestone yeah, we area kind of lived up near there. and it, there used to be, you know, it used to just be all be fields and farmland. So we would have a harder time with, um, mice because that's, and that was their home, right. Mm. That we all invaded upon yep. and like, where are they going to go? We took over their land anyway. So now Kutu writes this book, the America that I knew or the America that I saw. And uh, he does this in 1949. Now, for Americans, when we think about 1949, well, I'll ask you, Stacey, 1949, when you think about what our values are, what's, what's rural, 
Northern Colorado life, what do you expect it to be like? This is a young college age Egyptian guy and he sees America and he comes and he goes to the basement of a church youth group in Greeley, Colorado. And he goes, just, he just kind of knows society. But what do you think are things that we would think? Forget about there's an Egyptian observer. Mm-hmm. 1949, you go back in time. What are you feeling in Greeley, Colorado? Um, probably potluck there at the... They're doing that. Yep, they're having the, the food. Thing with some kind of jello, <laughs> gelatin dish. <laughs> okay, yeah, we're just all the food. <laughs> but like just culturally, values, religion. Um, probably, I mean, if you're, t- you're probably talking uh, farmers, so hard work ethic. They're, you know, rise early, go to bed, you know, fairly early. Uh, maybe, you know... I don't know, less, less encouraging of dancing and, right. um, you, you know, more, you know, you would think of more of just, I don't know. Um, I mean, I guess co- the community would probably revolve around the church because that was the biggest way of getting together. Yep. So church is a centerpiece. It's conservative politically. Right. It's hardworking. It's, um, it's, it, it sees itself as ethical, but here's, but, but Kutu, when he gets there, he says that, um, Essentially, when he gets there, that this is uh, this is a, da- a very dangerous place. Again, this is 1949 America. This is not the 60s America. He says that um, uh, he he experiences a culture that is greedy, and he experiences a culture that is highly sexually charged, and in a in a um, um, in a self destructive way. This is, again, 1940s Colorado. This is the most conservative place you could be in America. Hmm. These are very churchy people. These are people who would have thought that they were very conservative. People outside, people from New York or or Los Angeles might have said, these are backwards, very conservative, um, traditionalist um, Americans. But Kutub saw that they were lustful for power and sex. And they didn't see it. They were going to church. Now, Stacey, we, we know this. He says they would go to the church dances, and even though they would not be explicitly sexual, girls knew how to use their eyes and their pouty lips mm-hmm. and their, the way they would dress and all this, and that actually church was a place that was very sexually charged. Well, and especially because <clears throat> they emphasized... Not having sex. Not having sex, and so that's <laughs> right. what everybody's going to be thinking about, right? But they're also, they're also having these rituals in yeah. the dance, and they actually right. did dancing. It was also, Greeley was a dry county. So in, in America, even to this day, there are some counties that prohibit alcohol. So, hmm. so, it's the, you would th- so I guess the, the thing that was really interesting about Kutub's story is that... This reminds me a lot of what it felt like when we lived in Kentucky. In Kentucky. Yeah, everybody was drinking, but it was not legal. Right. And that they were talking about freedom. I mean, I even remember this. I remember somebody coming up and saying, like, you know, do you support the invasion of Iraq? And I said, you know, I, I think this is going too fast. This isn't good. They said, well, don't you want to bring them freedom? I said, well, they don't, like in Islamic culture, they don't drink and they don't dance. We don't drink and we don't dance. So why do we have to go fight? What are we, what are we doing here? And there was this, there was this, um, this strange disconnect in terms of what, again, this is the key how Americans saw themselves versus what they were giving off. What was the image? And so, again, whether you agree with, with Kutub's um, uh, ultimate political ideas or not, I think it's a very, very valuable book to, to just kind of understand. And, and I think some, some critics have said that what he really was doing was kind of veiled 
criticism of Egyptian culture that was doing some of those same things, mm. that they were letting too much of these kind of decadent uh, ways to come about. So that's our setup. But uh, Malik, what do you what do you see when you come here? Like, if you were to write a if you were to write a book on your you know <laughs> observations of of what we are, you I ta- I asked you what what we um, what we eat, especially here at a Christian university. What do you think we worship? What do Christians What do Christians worship in Southern California? Do you think? I think I've seen um, different kinds of Christians so far. They're the ones who are just Christians by name and just say, I love Jesus. But when you ask them more about the Christian religion, they don't really have an answer. Um, And I've been here in Concordia, and um, I've seen the Christians who really know their religion or try to know their religion very well. But um, from my perspective so far is, I feel like if I ask different um, theologians or different priests about certain questions, I might get like, let's say I asked five of them the same question I might get four or five different answers, so I feel like there is this kind of division amongst the people of what is right and what is not right or how to do certain things in a certain way um, it is very divided amongst a group that should be very united that makes a lot of sense because that's totally true, and I think a lot of a lot of us who grew up in it. And I think it's true for any religion. If we didn't find it on our own, if we grew up in it, and and it was just something we grew up with, uh, yeah, then there might be holidays and things that we that we do, and and there's like what we call like the Easter Easter and Christmas Christians. Yeah, um, you find this in 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 many you find this in many traditions. Let's now take it to Orange County here, Orange County, Southern California culture. What are your observations? What what do you see? It's cultureless, if that's even a word. Mm. I don't feel like people here do actually have a culture or do have certain roots to be not necessarily proud of, but they feel like, okay, this is where I feel like I belong to. I don't feel like anyone here in Orange County has the feeling of, yeah, I am actually from Orange County and I feel so welcomed here in Orange County because this is where I feel like I belong to. Mm. So I don't feel like Orange County is a place of culture. Yeah. There's a lot of, and, and at the same time, it's one of the most diverse places and not the most diverse places. You've got people from all sorts of countries. Like there's you know, other parts of America where you might, you might have like some Polish people and some German people and some Scandinavians, you know, mm-hmm. and then maybe some Mexican American immigrants or so forth. But you're right. There's a lot of different people from different places, but we don't have rootedness. We don't have often those, that village sense. Well, and even if you think about, so what is American food? You know, like mm-hmm. we sort of do a hodgepodge of a whole bunch of different cultures and just, I guess make it probably a little bit more boring or something, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like I don't know, other than like a, you know the hamburger or maybe like ribs is supposed to be like really American or something, you know, or you know, like yeah, there's, like, especially know. regionally, um, like in the South or something. But yeah, Orange County. But it, but it is interesting, just in general with America. I feel like um, yeah, we just have sort of borrowed from all of these other cultures, made it our own, and it's just this hodgepodge i don't know and everybody's take on it is slightly different and it kind of changes a little bit wherever you go but anyway it's just 
It's interesting. When you, if you were to talk to your friends back home, like what is the thing that, without it being like a bad thing so much, but just kind of almost humorous, is there something that you just kind of chuckle to yourself? Like, why do they do that? Mm. Yeah, this is, I feel like a major thing. (laughs) You guys Americanize certain foods and, and then say that this dish belonged to somebody else like mm. for example fettuccine alfredo is not italian <laughs> but when you go to an italian restaurant here in southern california you will see fettuccine alfredo but if you serve that to an italian they will get offended and tell you that this is not italian it's an americanized dish mm. so one thing that i usually ask myself is why do americans americanize all the food and then they say it's not theirs they say like oh this is italian That's this is chinese this is that <laughs> I think the answer is we don't know what it would be for it to be ours. We just don't know what it would be. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, it, you know, just trying to figure right. out like, what it, is it, it to be. Everything has to be a reference to some other culture, partly because this idea of American whiteness is not really ethnic. We're not really ethnic. We're um, an ideology. And unfortunately, it's largely been a white ideology, but by this, they mean the imperial powers of Europe. So if you can connect something to that, then that's the most that we have of our ancestry. And then if you can connect something to a foreign culture that is, that is one that was conquered, it has an exoticness to it. So this is very British. British people, their favorite, I mean, they just said that the, the national food of Britain now is chicken tikka masala. And I think that that helps answer your question because chicken tikka masala is Indian food, but it was really invented when British people wanted something that they could tolerate with their palate. And they brought people, they brought some of the best chefs from India over to England. And so the best, I would say like the best Indian food that I like (laughs) is in England and Hong Kong. But this is because my palate, it like... That's where we fell in love with that. yeah, Yeah. They brought kind of these dishes together and... Um, and of course, British food is, is uh, English food is just terribly bland up until this point. And so they, they needed, you know, um, uh, Kurdish kebabs. And uh, I mean, I, we, we could not have, if it wasn't for our Kurdish friends and our, and our um, Indian friends in, 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 uh, in England, we, we, been we would have starved to death just because I can't eat another boiled potato. Boiled potato. <laughs> I mean, just, they just, uh, they could take all the flavor out of anything. But the point being, in that same, in that same regard, um, imperial powers, people that are in control, one of the things that happens with food is they don't have to rely on the art of the cooking. They don't rely on mom. Uh, they don't rely on, on the garden. Because um, if you're rich, you can just kill a, kill a cow, eat as much of the meat as you want, and, um, and maybe you have a little bit of like rice or pasta or something on the side, but you're, you're eating just because you, you can. When you have to make do with um, like less expensive cuts of meat and you need to tenderize it, that's how you get something like um, fajitas. Fajitas are pieces of meat that Mexican-Americans in Texas learned to soften. And that's in that softening process, all of this tradition and flavor comes out. All of the richness of, of, of a pho in... in, in uh, Vietnamese food, of really extracting the flavor of the marrow of the bone and all of that. That's something that, that local cultures are better at than the dominator culture, the imperial culture. 
that then goes in and wants to make everything, and this is the key point, um, functional for a mass civilization. So if you're kind of trying to, you know, have like this homogenous, yeah, like here's American culture, there's all these people, you're going to feed a lot of people, keep them happy, but keep them happy working really hard without being part of the family, right? So like the food that really is good is one that's made by the whole community, the village. Even you're saying your dad cooks and right. he's good. And it's like we can, in all of our various ways, we bring, we bring these riches, your brother comes and brings something, you know, that, that kind of thing that's not prepackaged requires a lot of time that, that life does not afford when you're working as much as sometimes Americans need to work. But this is a good question because I know you're like, you're, your dad's in real estate. And how, 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 many, how, how many vacation weeks does a Saudi man get working? If we speak about um, like throughout the calendar year, there is... I would guess approximately the first one is 13 days for like the last 10 days of Ramadan and then the f- the first three days of um, Shawwal that is for Eid and then you also have approximately five days for the second Eid of the year. Um, this is what I can recall at the moment but these are the ones that are guaranteed for you to have throughout the year. And they're built in. They're built in just kind of as religious holidays, yes. and then that timing. So you've you've got, a, and then like, because like, like Japanese people, they're working until nine, and then they get up in the morning at five, and they start up. Like that's the worst. I do not want to work the Japanese the Japanese work hours. And I'm not sure that Americans work exactly this the same amount of time. But I mean, would you what, what do you see about that? Like, do do you see us working more or less? I feel like here in this case, America's in a different category. It's not mm. a lot. It's not too little but it is to the extent where i will work as many hours as i can as long as it makes me survive and live as best as i can because this is what i this is what life is about that is survival mode so i'll just go there and bust myself so hard that i just need to live whether it's 16 hours a day or eight hours a day does it make a difference i just need to make a living and just live Mm. so it's not too much it's not too little it's just to make myself live and survive in this world Mm. and so when and you're talking about that and for americans is what you're seeing yes Yeah. yeah so then is that different for the mentality of um like Saudis when they're working? Like, do they work for a different purpose? Um, there are diff- different reasons for um, working, from what I can see in Saudi Arabia. Um, it can be like, you know, for living and surviving. It can be helping your family. It can be just helping yourself. Or um, it can be for just saving for a trip. There are different various reasons. But when somebody actually in a position where they're just working to live and survive, they always find hand for that is given to them for help mm. because we feel like nobody should be suffering this much and kind of killing themselves to just live and survive in this world so you would see help from your family or your friends to make everything a little bit easier mm. and not just and help you to not make your life all around just work gotcha. and i think that's i think that's what kutub meant by the greed mm. they weren't trying to be super rich it was, and, and maybe there'd be some things, but there, there's this idea that if you're not doing well in America, there's something wrong with you. So if you're, if you're struggling, 
then we say, well, that's because you're weak or that's because you're not smart enough or there's something wrong with your culture. There's something wrong with you or, you know, um, even somebody who you're, if you're thinking about mental health, um, it's hard. I don't know, especially with COVID, people have not wanted to be lazy. Even Stacey and I are sometimes just saying, why can't we, we don't have anywhere to go but it's like we're it's so hard you're in this kind of funk and this loneliness and you're kind of stuck and you're in the same room and so forth but americans have this way typically of saying if you didn't survive that you kind of deserve to to not be um to not survive in a way which is really funny because uh, conservative christian americans are really opposed to darwin's theory of evolution but that's very much a an evolutionary way of thinking that the weak should be abandoned. Uh, our old people, we tend to abandon. Several of it is right. Yeah, so right. Is. Right. And, um, and, and the, well, and I think that's the other real, that's another key piece I'm curious about because I, it seems like all of a sudden when Americans and they retire, um, and as you know, as people get older, they're kind of, I feel like we sort of push our elderly off. Um, and well, I'm curious, do you, have you witnessed, what do you, what do you see, I guess, is what we do with our older people? Um, I've seen, um, as well, like different, um, things that have been done, sending them to the elderly shelter or, um, maybe they take turns where like a sibling takes care of their parents one day and then the other siblings take care of them the other day. Um, I've seen also like bring the elderly a nurse or, or caregiver, um, but generally, you know, there are like a lot of different options that I've seen uh, to be done to the elderly here in, here in America. Um, but I was very shocked about um, sending them to the elderly shelter or a nursing home as something normal or okay to be done. Mm-hmm. And just and it's it's the same kind of thing. I, I think we th- we talk about food as like people food, like the what we the way we feed. We were talking about this the very thing we were saying with the health. You we eat to survive. We eat to survive. We work, we work, to, work survive. to survive. Yeah, and, th- and then and when we just we, put our grandparents in to survive re- somewhere, and when we retire, like you've lost your productivity, your uh, effectiveness, and you know, and you, you don't have your work right. anymore, and that's all you've known that's and right. done. You're not useful for something. And you're not useful, so you just kind of get pushed aside until you don't exist. Don't have the intrinsic value. And then that, like we were saying, if you're feeding our, if you're feeding a country the way you feed your dog and you're feeding your dog like kibble, that's not, that's not the best of food. Then you're just trying to get it to survive rather than to thrive. Right. So I want to ask one more, uh, a question about something, maybe that a story that's a, a painful experience in America, if you don't mind. And then maybe one thing that you say, this is a beautiful thing. This is a good thing. So I want to start with the, the negative, but in, in, in as long as you've been here, what would you say? Could you tell us a story, if you wouldn't mind? Like what is maybe a painful or difficult experience you've had here? Hmm. Like overall, like I've had the pleasant and the unpleasant, um, but I don't really ever think that um, I've felt so alone or I've never felt that I'm so helpless or there's nothing around me to rely on. But um, a very painful thing was uh, from what what I've experienced and from comparing to where I've come from, that is the lack of interdependency here in the U.S. And I feel like it's very painful in some extent, but also helped me get out of my interdependency 
independent culture mm. background and become independent myself. So there is like the lack of, um, oh, let's all gather ourselves, like, for example, like your friend group, for instance, where one day a week, let's say like Friday, you all gather and make Friday a day of your own as a group and just gather and hang out. Yeah. Um, it, it almost doesn't exist here in the U.S. It's all because of, oh, hey, I got work, I got this, I got to do that, no, I'm busy, no. So there's like no interdependency. There is no culture of like, whether it's family or friends or let's say even coworkers and colleagues. There is no like fixed thing where oh let's all hang out and just enjoy our time just and just be. enjoy it in the moment. This is a thing that is partially painful, but also helped me get out of my interdependent phase yeah. due to my cultural background and just get back to independency and just balance between both. Mm. That's why st- when Stacy and I were traveling around for eight months, we were looking to see mm-hmm. if we moved somewhere, is there anywhere? And, 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 and I, I agree with you. There are definitely fa- friend groups that have m- been able to do this. There are families that do this. Um, there are cultures within America, specifically Mexican-American cultures, say on Saturday we're going to go to the park, we're going to bring all of our barbecues out. All the generations are going to be together. So there are, this is a, when I'm making this criticism, I'm, I'm speaking about our world in terms of, Stacy and my world, of people that are, like, you know, from other parts of the country that move here. And I would agree with you. And it is painful. I'm glad that you're learning from it. That's right. good. Because that's good that you should do it. But it's an important thing for our, our health. Because if you're a dear listener, like, do you, do you not agree? That's great then. If you have those friends and th- those groups you know, cultivate that and stick with it. But we don't have bowling leagues the way we used to. We don't mm-hmm. have that idea. We're all going to go to the park. Um, you were talking, you know, um, there are immigrant communities in Irvine that do this, that I, like, I'm so sad that I can't be a part of. Like, you know, all the Turkish guys getting out playing volleyball. Yeah. And they, and they're having a good time and they, they're catching up and it's, they're just being together. Mm-hmm. They're not trying to work on getting a business deal together. It's like, they're just hanging out and maybe they do business deals. You can say, I can't remember. No, sorry. sorry. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, and I think, but the, uh, the other thing that makes me sad for international students here is that I know how joyful Stacy and I have been going to study in Geneva or in, in England when we were in, uh, at Oxford, where you could just go and start talking to people, not just even people your age, at like a pub, and you can like almost make instant friends like within two days. And then the next week when I come back, I'll catch up with some older lady about like their grandchild or something, or there'd be, there'll be um, a conversation that I have with some poet or something. And in America, everything's functional. This is what I think we're kind of starting to see Stacy. Like everything is just to survive or just to, to have things been, you know, get the basic needs met. Mm -hmm. I go to a bar to get laid. I go to a bar to get drunk but it's not, I'm not going to the bar for the experience. I'm not, I, I'm not doing this. I'm <laughs> saying that this is what, <laughs> what people this might is say. What, yeah, and it's very rare. Like you can't just show intention. up. And if Stacey and I were to go to a, a public, like kind of gathering place and start to talk to somebody, people will always say like, all right, what are you trying to do? Like, it's almost like, are you, right. would you right. come coming on to us or what's going right. on? Well, Unless so it's people from other countries. So what we're missing is sort of that cheers experience right, just, from just that that's openness, a TV the show where they would all just gather around this that community, community bar just to, to hang out. But, and also it's also, you know, it also surrounds, um, uh, it also surrounds alcohol, right? Which, which we yeah. enjoy, but it's interesting. Like, um, 
uh, so many fights happen. <laughs> so many fights happen because of alcohol. Um, it's, at these, at these, spa, these spots. I remember what I was going to say, yeah. and it was related to uh, with COVID. I'm guessing that super um, individualness or whatever the independence that we have. It's really scary when something like that hits your small little family when you don't have a larger community, right, you know, help helping you out. You out. Yeah. And and I think that that's part of what was so scary for Americans, even and you know, and thinking about you know our mental yeah, health during that time because we. Even even if you, as groups, like we, we don't have these, you know, like you said, set groups, because even if you could c- kind of sort of all join together and all sort of only agree to hang out with each other, right. then you can still have that community with that select group, you know. But I think with Americans, it was kind of like, there's we're so interwoven, so it was kind of the only way to really do it is just to ignore that entirely and just still hang out and do your life. Right. Or... To so you know, so completely isolate that you're not you know like like my parents for instance they re- haven't seen anybody you know they're just re- they really are sheltering at home you know knowing now that there's a vaccine it kind of gives them hope to keep you know but they're they're pretty much by themselves eight you months know? yeah and fortunately they have the ability to live in their own home mm-hmm. but a lot of the a lot of the early problems were the the pandemic going through the old folks' homes mm-hmm. the people the elderly care homes. Mm-hmm. In um, in psychology, is there a um, is there an aspect of it or a, or a or an avenue within it that you find most interesting? Hmm. Um, generally, overall, like I find um, psychology, it's a very interesting field, and this is why I'm so in it. I'm actually a big um, believer of um, Freud's theories. Really? Yeah. Okay, this is good. I want to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> But um, generally, I feel like um, one part of psychology that I'm so into that is the unconsciousness, mm. and um, it's I feel like there is an unconscious part of us as humans, as individuals, that make us take certain actions and certain um, decisions. Um, this is why sometimes it like how we view America or how we view the U.S. is very weird because a part of our unconscious is very different and how people in the U.S. view it as something very normal, but we view it as something very out of the ordinary. Do you have an example? So, for instance, um, so as you just said um, a couple of points ago where if you approach somebody in a bar or in a pub just trying to socialize, they start to get fearful like what do you want is there something up with you right um like how is that so normal like what made it so normal to the extent like somebody just trying to get socialized with you and just have a talk why why the fear yeah so there is like the unconscious part of you to be to be afraid all the time yeah and like very suspicious you're very suspicious and nobody really knows why no we don't know why we don't know why everyone's just like what are you talking yeah well, and it's interesting because interesting. Irvine has been built so that you don't socialize with your neighbors because they think that there'll be fights and problems sometimes in communities when they're too close and get too close together and mm-hmm. interdependent, right? And and so they actually even you literally are supposed to just pretty much almost, you know, click open your garage door, drive into your garage, close it and go 
in your place and you have your own private patios and things like that, but it's not Yeah, public meeting spaces are dangerous. Mm -hmm. And, well, we're not the only society that knows this. I mean, public meeting places can be dangerous. There can be protests, you know. It was hard when the Black Lives Matter protests were happening here. It was hard to know where they would do it because there's not like a, a center, like a square. There's not like a plaza, like a Spanish... Uh, kind of but it, style, but it creates this mentality that you're almost afraid to see your neighbor, <laughs> like, yeah. like almost We're like oh, always wait, very they're afraid. like they're they're getting out of the garage. We'll let them go before we go out, you know yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Rather than um, which was a different neighborhood than I grew up in because I did grow up in one where there were um, several families that all like they bought the houses at the same time. And so right. I kind of, we all grew up together. Mm-hmm. And so we all were um, <laughs> really loud. We'll just keep going. This, this is just the sounds of Concordia at Christmas. <laughs> so anyway, we all very much, we had the, you know, the longer driveways and we had a cul-de-sac at the end and it became like, you know, more of a meeting spot and all of us were hanging out. So I did grow up at least with a, with you a did. different experience, you did. That was but a that very was fairly long. Long. Uncommon, I think. And then it went away. Yeah, it did. Because it just, people moved to different different spots. Right. So what's an experience or something that you've observed that's beautiful, that's something you'd say, all right, we've we've, we've given a nice little, you know, reprimand to some (laughs) of the the cultural weaknesses, but what would you say is, um, you know, a good moment or something that that you say, uh, this is good, this is beautiful? Mm. I think... um Generally, I feel like for us as humans, it takes us that very one action that would wake us up and take actions. So when the Black Lives Matter started, I feel like it was a beautiful act to see by different groups. Like we have seen different groups, whether by race or by politics or whatever the case could be, they were all protesting with with this. Like they were united for one specific reason, and that is Black Lives Matter. So um, to see the human instincts and the human nature getting up into them, one action, one incident that made a whole nation get back on their feet and start protesting for a certain group for due to a certain incident, and just say that's enough, we're done. Black Lives Matter. Such things should stop and. Everyone is equal. So this was a very beautiful thing to see like there is still some part of us that is still alive here in the U.S. Hey there, friends. In our travels across the U.S., we have found a website that we absolutely love. It's called Harvest House. Could you imagine camping overnight in a vineyard, distillery, brewery, or a golf course all to yourself? We've been doing it, and it is absolutely magical. If you go to our website, protectyournoggin.org, you'll find a link where you can sign up and get 15% discount on the annual fee. We think it'll put a smile on your face and you can help support the podcast at the same time. All you need is an RV or camper with a toilet and cooking facilities, and you can stay all around the country for free. We hope you dig it as much as we do. Check it out. So when we talk about American culture, what does that mean to you? This is a thing that um, I feel like I'm trying to figure out as well. I feel like if I ask somebody, what does it mean to have an American culture? Mm. So for me as an outsider, as an expat, how are you going to explain to me the American culture? Whether in food or family events or um, sports, whatever the case could be, um, what does it mean to have an American culture? 
So, for instance, um, let's take Italy f- as an example. So, um, in Italy, they have like um, the food culture, right? They have they have high, very high levels of pride in, in themselves with their food and their art and their culture. Um, even in sports, for instance, and a team from the north faces a team from the south or a team that is right wing versus left wing, you see that there is culture. You see that there is passion and love behind it. Mm. But as for Americans or here in the U.S., what does it actually mean that? So let's say somebody who lives in L.A., will they find cultural troubles in Chicago, for instance? Or Probably, like, yeah. <laughs> right? So um, the other... Like the other question, like can also lie is, is there like also like rivalry amongst cities, for instance, here in the United States? So, for instance, in England, there is this level of hatred, I guess I could say, between the two cities of Manchester and Liverpool. Yeah, I've seen this. Yeah, yeah. it can get pretty. It can be rough, right? Especially when it comes to footy, you know. Yeah, they're massive lovers of um, soccer as it is called here in the United States, mm-hmm. they take it as a part of their culture to express love or hatred or send a message, right? Yeah, we have seen it also here in the U.S. to send, like, a message for Black Lives Matter. Mm. But what about themselves as a whole, as a group? Like, what does it actually mean to be an American? Now, that's a hard question to answer for me. Do you have an idea of what it might be? I mean, can you take a stab at it? I have an, an an answer for a different question, but it also lies under the same category. Um, I feel like a lot of people, why they view you, the United States as the American dream and the getaway place where mm. they want to study or travel or seek asylum or whatever the case could be, is because the U.S. lack a culture themselves. Mm-hmm. So when somebody comes here to the United States, it's not really very difficult for them to feel like they belong somewhere because this country lacks culture, they lack roots to be proud of, and the list continues on and on. But are you saying that that also allows a kind of open space a little bit? I mean, that the, the fact that America doesn't have a particular culture that's easily identified allows people to become themselves, to be creative, to be individual? Yes, this is also an end to it, um, which also lies um, under psychology where, it, where there is this belief of um, the feeling that somebody feels like they belong somewhere is one of the most basic human needs. Yeah. So the lack of culture makes America as a very open and welcoming place because there is no specific sets of rules or culture or this and that or do's and don'ts. So this makes it a very welcoming place and an easier place than most parts of the world, I guess I would say, to feel like they belong somewhere. Hmm. If you create it. You know, I, mean, I, we, I was thinking about this as we've talked about that, that need to assemble you know, with your friends on a Friday and you go camping or whatever, but just that place. I know that in my life there have been times when I had found that and that that was really important to people you show up on saturday night at a professor's house and it's just a free space right and that is helpful it's hard to find what you're saying though is that in some sense that that scare it's scary sometimes you can be lonely but it also gives you some space maybe to discover what it is 
Is right. What saying? Yeah. I mean, when I was in England, I had a very difficult time. I didn't, I didn't uh, have any real connection with actual British people. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really realize till the end that it had to do with class. So that it, um, it's not primarily racist, it's more classist. So if I am from, if they perceived me from a wealthy background or an upper class background, then that would give me certain access to, to relationships. If they saw me as this wild colonial from, from uh, you know, this rustic America, then, then they didn't even talk to me. And so my friends were always international students, even though right. I looked, you know, like them in many ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Irish people, the Romani, um, uh, Danish people, Dutch people, you know, everybody who's uh, from Asia or whatever, when we're there, we were, we were in that space. When, they, when I gave them a letter that made them think that I had a bunch of money, all of a sudden they treated me differently, mm-hmm. as if I was part of a different club. So in, in one sense, America, I would say there's a way in which it's not inviting, not welcoming, in terms of an emotional aspect, mm-hmm. but it's welcoming of difference. And so there is, a, to some extent, right, and in some places, it's not true across the country. Right. Certainly in the cosmopolitan areas, that's what, that's what we do, right? That's the Statue of Liberty. This is this, the diversity is what makes us great. It also causes these tensions and the rivalries, yeah, but I mean, so so I, I like that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think that if if when I'm being negative, though, I would say that American culture is a culture of winning. It's right. a domination culture. So it doesn't really matter if you're Persian or you're Dutch in your ancestry. If you're the winner, then you're in a certain category, and it's not wealth. So like in Britain, it was does your family come from uh, an upper class? family right that's one thing in america that almost doesn't get you anywhere it's more could you make yourself somebody could you uh you know it racism kind it racism doesn't go away but if you're black and you're really good at athletics you're invited to parties mm-hmm. right so it ha- and and so there's a different category for the winners and that's and that's i think part of the thing that makes me nervous sometimes especially with students you know the uh, students if you're not smart that doesn't necessarily mean you're a terrible person, but we have this way of kind of just casting off, right? You know, as you mentioned <laughs> the before, the rush to do something, yeah, the rush to achieve, the rush to be there. There is always something going on, yeah. The urge <laughs> to just survive and live and right. do something. We never really rest in, in contentment. What um, what that also then points to again is this idea that you've pointed out of this constant fear. So what? So t- tell me a little bit more about what you see there with the constant fear. Um, this is the thing that I realized, I think, from the second I stepped foot here in the United States a little bit over two years ago, that is, everyone is always afraid of something. Yeah. Everyone gets this feeling that they should protect themselves from something, whether it's, like, for, for instance, a certain group from the cops or a certain group from another racial group, right? Mm. Or the fear of being homeless, the fear of not succeeding. There is always something that they are afraid of. I think that's true. And they always get the feeling that they should protect themselves. But I feel like this also lies for a reason that is... um, Nobody here has a certain authority figure that they trust. Yeah. So if you make a poll, do you really trust the president or do you really trust the cops or do you really trust these certain authority figures? Yeah. The answer is almost always no. 
yo, <laughs> this is a thing, right? Mm. So this really raises fear amongst everyone. It's built into our constitution. I mean, that's part of the Second Amendment. Sometimes we say the reason um, the reason we have guns is to is to hunt and uh, for self protection. But in another sense, it's built into the constitution that these guns are to be protecting citizens from the government. So right. that's built in. We're already waiting for the government to become a tyrant, and so we're always on edge. At least symbolically mm-hmm. so technically like if we look at like for instance um religious countries let's take Saudi arabia i feel like they have two kinds of authority figures mythos and logos mythos is the one that is not really tangible or concrete and that is religion they take that as an authority figure and that that they trust the other authority figure and that is um logos that is the actual ruler or the king so when something happens, we trust what the king is doing. Mm. But here in the United States, no, you don't really see that. There is no trust in mythos or, or logos. Mm, that's right. As an authority figure. There is always criticism. There is always, no, this should be very different because this is how I should be protected or this is how I proceed further. So there is no trust in authority figures here in the United States. And I think... This is a major reason why United States is one of the, it can, from the outside, it can look as one of the strongest countries in the world, but from the inside, it's very fragmented. Yeah. It's like a scramble. And the lack of trust in authority figures is one, one of the main reasons why America is one of the most fragmented countries in the inside. And that's what we're dealing with right now. And in many ways, some, some would argue that the, uh, the Russians and the Chinese or whomever might have exploited that, that distrust. Everybody over the last several years, I think, has found in America that where, you know, from our perspective, we saw something like the Arab Spring as a sign that Facebook and Twitter were very helpful for human flourishing. Right. And there can be ways in which it... it it can help with liberty, but for Americans, we have turned in on ourselves and that Facebook says, we don't trust vaccines. We don't trust masks. We don't trust foreign uh, visitors. We don't trust uh, our own uh, politicians. If they want to give us $300, we think that's too little. If they're doing $2,000, we think they're bribing. If they send a drone to hit something in Afghanistan, we think they didn't do that for strategic purposes. They're doing that to get away from a sex scandal. Right. We never have any, yeah, you, we never have any trust. That's interesting. Yeah, and I think this is a major thing. I feel like, like in a lot of countries, anywhere in the world, whether it's a first world country or a third world country, the reason of any country's success is based on one thing, and that is the king or the ruler or the president earning the trust of his people. Mm. This is the major key. How many Americans would say that they trust Biden 100% or their current president 100%? Most people that I know that voted for Biden uh, do, do not trust him at all. They just didn't want Trump. Right. And even with Trump, people said, well, I mean, there's some, there's some fans, super fans of Trump, mm-hmm. but even there, there were a lot of people who said, I don't trust him. I just want him to appoint Supreme Court justices that fit with my values. Right. One other point I've heard from a fellow of mine that is, I only voted for Biden because he's the best of the worst options that we have. Yeah. And I feel like... We say that a lot. Yeah. And I feel like partially this is a very sad thing because... 
how do you as a country as a whole where everyone need where everyone needs to fulfill their basic needs and that is they feel like they belong somewhere as a group as a whole as a country you want to proceed further if you do not really trust whoever is ruling you whoever is representing your voice it's a good rhetorical question i think that also the um the answer fits in with what we've been talking about which is you don't trust anybody you can only trust yourself so you have to hustle and scramble and work as hard as you can to survive right. because no one's looking out for you i also believe in another point that is too much of something is nothing right mm. Amer- i appreciate that america really appreciates um the freedom of speech mm-hmm. i feel like it's a very good thing not a lot of countries in this world does actually have freedom of speech but Don't you think that it is backfiring a little bit at its own people, at the government itself, and yeah. everything? Because if you watch Fox, it says something. If you watch BBC, if you watch CNN, everyone is saying something different. Everyone is showing like 1% part of the truth yeah. because it's freedom of speech, which creates a level of um, ignorance amongst the people because when they see a part of the truth as the whole truth... people will have some fear they will get ignorant they will start attacking each other because they only know a part of the truth but not all of it and if they don't like the part of the truth that somebody else is sharing they simply deny it true yeah that it's a it's a it's recent it seems to me i mean i, I don't remember things being this bad but we have got you were right we were, we've gotten to a spot where we have so much so-called freedom of speech that it all you're right that's beautiful uh, i mean it's ugly but it's true what you're saying that we have so much openness that you can have some people believing that the earth is flat some people think that the world is old world is old or it's young or the global warming is af- being affected by climate um uh, ta- or the um, carbon emissions mm-hmm. some people simply deny it um it's as if you can say anything you want because you you're not really dealing in the world of truth there's no actual human dialogue we're right. just yelling at each other yeah. exactly there the whole country is just basically fragmented and one of the main reasons that created all this is there is too much openness as you have just said because mm-hmm. too much openness just gave everybody the choice to voice their opinion and i feel like the ones who are supposed to voice their opinion because they are the ones who know the whole truth are being shut down Yeah. constantly and the ones who are voicing their opinions and voicing whatever they're seeing are the ones who are not really competent yeah. to really represent <laughs> yeah. whatever they're presenting medicine yeah i don't know what to do about that but that is the paradox that is the mm-hmm. paradox because of course the alternative could be i just listen to what um you know what my what my national leader says and maybe that guy doesn't have my best interest so it's it's um as you're saying it's there's a there's a there's a nice thing about the freedom i mean certainly this goes back to the late medieval world where in england they said there should be certain protections um we shouldn't have journalist really what it should be about is journalists should not fear for their lives right i mean that's the key because we need journalists to be able to be a kind of prophetic voice but the idea that you could just go make up anything you want or spread disinformation that's actually dangerous mm. to people that is something that i think we're going to have to as a culture 
whatever that means, Americans are going to have to figure out what to do about that because it is getting us into a spot that I think is dangerous enough that America as, a, as an institution could go away. Right. Most people don't think of that, but I mean, like Lebanon right now, it's, it's not a bloody uh, uh, revolution. On the next episode, I'm going to be interviewing somebody uh, in Lebanon, mm-hmm. and so it's fortunately not incredibly violent, but there are times when societies see that their government simply goes away and it has to become something mm-hmm. new. I also feel like whatever is going on right now in the United States is a different version of the Stanford experiment. Oh, okay, keep going, yeah. The Stanford experiment, of course, questionable. Sometimes people, um, you know, people have noted some of the problems with the methodology, but certainly very interesting. This is where the hippie kids were put in and they, uh, well, they were kids. Some of them were hippies that had become cops and they acted in kind of brutal ways towards their fellow students when they were put into that role. And, uh, and the psychologist um, Zimbardo uh, also points to how that same, func- that same psychological function was what allowed a lot of bad things to happen with Abu Ghraib, with American um, atrocities uh, in, in, in war crimes because of that group mentality. But go right. ahead. Yeah. Uh, the reason I'm comparing those two things with each other is in because in Stanford's experiment the guards were technically given the freedom to do whatever they feel, felt like it. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. when they were given this kind of freedom they exceeded all kinds of limits. Yeah. And as I pre- previously mentioned too much of something is nothing. Yeah. So they had the whole ultimate power and they abused it because we humans we crave for boundaries we crave red lines we crave we crave for rules we crave for laws if you don't have any of that that we will exceed what no other hum- what no other creature can ever reach because we, we, there are no laws to protect us or them or him or her or us mm. we will always do whatever is terrible because Every action is based on two things. It's either fear or pleasure. And when we're given the option to do anything, we will, choose the, we will always choose the, the very worst option. Mm. So what's happening here in the United States right now, everyone technically is given the option to do whatever they feel like it. But, okay, so here, here's this red line. Just don't exceed it, right? But... When it comes to freedom of speech, it's completely out there. Everyone can say whatever they feel like it. Everyone can say, okay, this is my opinion. This is not actually an opinion. This is a fact. This is the truth. And nobody actually needs guns or need weapons to destroy a whole nation or a whole army. You just need one thing. And that is excessive freedom of speech, social media. You need people to inject poisonous thoughts yeah. into a whole nation and this is how you destroy a whole nation as a whole this is what made America a very individualistic culture instead of being a very interdependent culture mm. where everyone trusts each other where everyone feel like okay my neighbor my friend my family my co-workers we all got get each other's back when something happens but we live in a world where everything became very individualistic where I matter where I need to succeed. I need to do this. I need to rush into being this or that. I need to, but what is my next step? So Putin doesn't need to invade us. He just needs to turn us on ourselves. I mean, that's, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. 
And it's easy to see that we have within us that, that, that festering energy, that, that anxiety, that fear. As long as I fear my neighbor, as long as I don't trust my neighbor, and as long as I'm not really trying to understand the truth, I'm just asserting my own reality. We will be more. We will be more brutal towards each other than outsiders. And I've seen this. I've right. seen Americans when I, tra- I travel to France. Americans can be comfortable with a democratic socialist in France, but somebody who's even more moderate politically is my enemy here. Mm-hmm. You know, I can be really nice to a sick uh, person that I meet, but another Christian is going to be my deepest enemy. Because right. I, yeah, and and in fact, in like my world with Lutherans, with Lutheran Christians. If you're a Christian, that doesn't mean that we are agree, agreeing with each other. And if you're a Lutheran, I probably hate you. Because, because the closer we get sometimes without that trust, without with right. that fear, we'll, we'll destroy each other mm-hmm. through our words first before anybody else comes to shut it down. There's a saying in Arabic in which I'm going to translate that is... Nice and slow. Nice and slow first. In Arabic. Right. أحذر من عدوك مرة من صديقك ألف مرة. Which technically means, be aware of your enemy once, but also be aware of your friend a thousand times. Mm. Because your friend knows you more than your enemy. He knows your weakness and he knows your strength points. Mm. And I feel like this is one of the main mottos and ideologies that is believed by most Americans here in this culture. And this is what what is causing this fragmentation amongst its people. We don't know our friends. Is that what you're saying? Is that what that really means? I mean, like, you're not, you're not getting to understand your friends and letting your friends help you see what your sickness is. What I'm trying to say here is, even though every Amer- like we all have friends, we all have people we can somewhat trust to a certain level, but everyone is also very aware or very superstitious of their friends and, or the people around them mm. because they feel like they will turn their back on them at mm. any certain point. Yeah. There is n- no trust or full trust between any individual, between any two individuals or more. Now, a lot of how you, how you frame American culture or comparing it to other cultures is through sports. You love soccer, but you also uh, probably have seen this in popular culture. So how do you see this with movies? This is actually a very good question because um, I did watch Money Heist and um, Locked Up series on Netflix. Um, They're both Spanish series, but you also feel like there is a message sent to higher authorities, whether a direct message or an indirect message. For instance, in uh, Money Heist, they feel like even though the government is in debt or is rich or this or that, they still feel like the government can still give more to their people. So by uh, by sending a message to their government, in the series they decide to rob uh, the Royal Bank of Spain or the Royal Mint of Spain. And uh, they kind of show like, yeah, like we can manage three months, four months planning the, for the heist, but we will earn more money or by the end of it, we will have more money than the ones who work every day and have college degrees and uh, very well educated because by the end of the day, how much are you going to earn? 1,500 euros, 1,800 euros by the, by the end of each month? It's a terrible salary. This is how they view it. But mm. also they feel like by robbing 
money from the Royal Bank of Spain or the Royal Mint of Spain, they will get whatever is theirs because in the series they show and implement the idea that this money is, does not really belong to the government. It it is robbed by the government from their own people. Right. This is. Have you heard of Robin Hood? Yes. Yeah, that kind of theme. Yeah. yeah. For instance, in uh, Locked Up series, um, they they um, criticize directly and indirectly the criminal justice system, where people um, go to prison for no apparent reasons. They also um, implement that even within pr- the prison itself, there is no much supervision. There's no supervisor. There's no president who will take things to, under control and mm. lead them to a better life. Like instead of just paying your debt by taking your freedom away, there could be much better options. So there is this kind of criticism in series and shows and stuff by other cultures. But yeah, we can see um, certain messages from certain movies and certain um, series you know, from the American culture, but is it really heavy or is it really emphasizing that every show they make or every series they make, it always has like this hidden message like, hey, we're actually craving for a better life because each series, each movie, whatever we watch that is, you know, between quotations, very American, we always just feel like, oh, okay, the good guy in the very beginning of the movie, he gets... um let's say, locked up, or he gets oppressed, um, he fights back, and he wins. Mm. Right? There's always this kind of um, plot or story, because it's just the good guy, he gets oppressed, and, you know, faces a couple of problems, the resolution, oh, he's back on track, and he wins. And that is a formula we have, yeah. Yeah, th- this is a formula that is always there in the American movies, American cultures, but, for example, Money Heist in um, uh, Locked Up, it's not always necessary the good guy is the one who wins because right. they also implement that even though we might lose or we're losing or we're going to lose, whatever the case could be, but they also have this mentality of we actually won despite the loss because we actually did send a message to the government. They will actually take oh. Precautions. They will change things because our message was sent not only to the government, but it was also an eye opener for the rest of the people. There is this idea that we have these eternal messages. We we love to, th- to talk about terrorists in other countries, but we have our own version of it, like the uh, school shootings in Columbine in Colorado. Mm-hmm. The the kids lose, but they become famous. Right. And we have this thing where we love fame. There's this kind of um, there's this other couple, Bonnie and Clyde. A lot of commentators point back to the period of the prohibition of alcohol in America, where there was so much corruption. There were still people making and selling alcohol. So we lost around that time. In like the 1930s, it seems that we might have had it before. But in the 1930s, we had developed this idea that the good guys might be the bad guys. That right. we, you know, when we were talking about trust, that the cops aren't necessarily out for our best interest, mm-hmm. but they are just another gang. So there's the mafia, and there's the cops, and there's good and bad in both. Right. And that sometimes the person who even, yeah, even goes out in a, in a blaze of glory is, is, is a hero, or, or maybe if not a hero, certainly sending a message. That's interesting. Did you ever see the movie, or did you ever see the, uh, the documentary series to uh, uh, The Making of a Murderer? 
Yes, I did see a couple of episodes. Now, the very end of it, so you didn't get to the end, and, you know, it's depressing, but when you get to the very end, you see that there are people who realize that the, the system has been um, applied badly, or like the law has not been applied well, but no one really takes ownership of it. Like, that's just, you know, we expect that, right? Yeah. We expect the, the, the failure of the justice it's system. Like, and too bad. Yeah, Move and we don't want to go, victim. judges don't want to go against the cops, so even though they see that it's bad, we have, we have more people in this country in prison than almost anywhere. China, I think, is the most. We're, right, we're very close to that. Mm. And we, we incarcerate. We put a lot of people in jail for a long time. Part of our problem is the privatization. So there's people making money on people being imprisoned. Right. And we pretend like we got rid of slavery. But people in these massive prison systems are making phone calls, helping you fix your computer, you know, making mm-hmm. license plates. There's essentially slave labor of people that are, all of their rights are going to be taken away for base, if they're felons for the rest of their lives. But there's a, there's a system to it. And we all know it. We all, Americans, we all kind of know it. And we do not have any, there's a certain sense in which we don't have a sense, we don't have a belief that we really can ultimately change it forever. It's always like mm-hmm. that kind of antagonism that goes back and forth. Because it's also... Um contradicts the idea of being a free country because technically the U.S. Is one, has one of the highest, if not the highest levels of people who are actually in jail. Right. That's not very free if yeah, you're in jail. Yeah, it's not really very yeah. free because if you actually look um, at the criminal justice system or the prison systems, it doesn't really help prisoners to like not only overcome what they have done, but also become really productive people in their community. Right. For example, they don't have high school diplomas. They get high school diplomas. They learn real life skills. They, le- uh, you know, they proceed further in life, whether academically or professionally. This is, for instance, like if, if you take a look at like Scandinavian countries, Sweden, Finland, why are they, why are they so far away, be- so far, like, in a whole new level? They're like a world of, of their own because... Yeah. They really take care of their people in a way where, okay, fine, you made a mistake, we will help you not only overcome this mistake, not only not doing it again, but avoid the mistake and fix it where you actually do something even more productive. Yeah, you, you're becoming somebody new. That's right. the idea. Yeah. Mm. So, for instance, going back to the other point, that is, we don't always see an actual message or a meaningful part from um, American movies and series because there's this always this idea where, okay, the ones who get the whole spot are actually the good guys and just because they're good guys or we view them as the good guys and because they're in love. They, <laughs> it's they're a love the, part, yeah. Yeah. There's always like a love triangle. Right, right. And they're the ones who get the winning by the end of the day. It's not like, no, we're sending a message or the ones who really send the message are the ones who proceed further or the ones who create an eye opener for for the rest of the people. No, it's there's no actual message. It's not really strong enough. Mm. Yes, we enjoy the plot, we enjoy everything. But what's really there that you're really trying to do? It's very an on the moment kind of um ideology here in the United States. We're like, okay, movies just to enjoy um ninety minutes and uh, okay, bye, thank you. Yeah. But no, like, there are series, there are shows, there are movies where, no, we are sending a message to have a better life for ourselves. We're criticizing directly and indirectly 
not only for ourselves but for the rest of the people around us mm. yeah that is i think we i think we do spend a little more time on that than really understanding the implications of sport for us sport is it, we get passionate about it but it is kind of more of a pastime too but i, I think you're right especially with these these series hey friends when we find things that we really dig We definitely want to share them with you. And Boondockers Welcome is one of the coolest things that we've discovered while we've been on the road. All you have to do is pay a small annual fee and then you get access to staying with folks all across the U.S. And we have just been completely blown away by the instant community we found. And we've made lifetime friends that have gone above and beyond with their kindness and their generosity. If you go to our website, protectyournoggin.org, you'll find a link there where you can sign up and we think you'll enjoy it and you can help support the podcast at the same time. All you need is an RV or a camper with a toilet and cooking facilities and then you can stay for free all around the country. Give it a try. I don't think you'll be disappointed. And we hope you enjoy it as much as we do. We're not done yet. None of our countries are done yet becoming what the beautiful version of us could be. And so by asking these hard questions, you know, um, we're, we're going to be able to um, at least, at least see, learn how to heal. From, you know? well, and see it from another perspective because yeah. uh, where, where any of this, you know, rings true for, for you in your own life, um, I, yeah, I think that there's something we can definitely learn from that. And so thank you for bringing that wisdom to us. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> Appreciate it. At the end of our show, we always say peace upon peace. And um, would you say that in Arabic for us? Um, so we can, we can say, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh as an ending. And that means um, peace be upon you. And thank you so much. Could you say it again slower? Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Shukran lakum. I'm going to try to memorize that. I can't do it now. I'm going to play it over and over. Well, All thank right. you. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of Protect Your Noggin Podcast. Want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on this show. You can record a voice message by going to protectyournoggin.org. That's protectyournoggin.org. You can also find show notes and other resources there on our site. Uh, we also invite you to follow us on Twitter at the P-Y-N-P. Again, that's at the P-Y-N as in Nancy, P. Please rate us on Twitter and, and tell a friend if this episode was helpful to you. Until next time, we wish you peace upon peace. But he said that wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter low too much.